So I, I don't want to... Be a to, politician? Yeah, politician in the sense that I work in order to foster an ideology. But I want to work to foster our people. Hello, my everyone, it's Jessie, and it's so good to be back with an episode from Germany. Today, you will hear from Ninwa Yonan, who currently works as a psychotherapist in training, and she wrote her master thesis about the genocide 1915 and transgenerational trauma. She also recently retired as a board member of the Syrian Youth Federation in Central Europe, in short AJM, after nine years working in it. And it's safe to say that she played a big role in the progress of AJM. And to be honest, for me and my friends, it would be really weird not seeing her on stage and hearing her constructive feedback and her motivation. I mean, it's the end of an era! I know! Exactly. And other than that, you will hear about Ninwa's experiences in different movements and interesting perspectives on some of the issues we have within our nation. For example, the name issue. I don't want to give too much away, so let's just jump right into it. But before, support for this week's episode of the Serum Podcast is brought to you by Tony Kalakarakos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Kalakarakos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. This episode is also sponsored by the Oshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Oshanas at 209-968-9519. Get to know them a bit more by checking out their website, theoshanapartners.com. And now let's hear from Nenua. Thank you, Ninwa, for being here. It's been two weeks, the last time I saw you uh, on that AGM event, where you said goodbye as a chairwoman. How do you feel? It was a very emotional weekend, right? Thanks, first, for inviting me. And yes, it was a very emotional weekend. Uh, after 10 years of AGM and nine years in the leading board, There were many goodbyes to say. I mean, I'm still uh, staying an active member, but um, in so many years working as a team, you form a lot of memories uh, and you get to know a lot of people. And they did this whole surprise party uh, in the evening. It was really lovely. And before we're going to talk about more about AGM, I really want you to a little bit introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your upbringing. You told me back then that you were born in Berlin, but you actually lived most of your life in Paderborn, which is in the northwest Germany. It's an area that is surrounded by a lot of Syrian, Syriac communities with different political views, names and churches. 
That's actually something I never witnessed in my neighborhood because mine was pretty simple. We had one church, one cultural club, all from the same village in Turadin. How is it growing up with such a, a diversity of our people? Yeah, so I spent the first uh, four or five years of my life in Berlin, uh, but then we moved to Paderborn, as you said, um, because most of our family father's side are living there. I think, like, I didn't really rem remember being in Berlin, so it wasn't a change for me. And when we came to Paderborn, the first years up until to my teenage time, I didn't really understand that we had so many different political views and churches and names. I remember uh, being the first time confronted with the different names uh, within our community because of a friend I had, an Assyrian friend at school. And I always called myself Aramean and uh, he said Assyrian. We both agreed that we are from one people and having one culture, but we never talked about it. And um, we had German friends and they confronted us. They said, well, but uh, he says he's Assyrian and you're saying you're Aramean. And that was the first time I was actually confronted with it. And so we started talking about it and I, I asked my father what the difference is. And he told me, well, there is no difference. Um, At home, we were always only saying Sirioe and my grandparents Suroe. And I just picked up the word Aramean because everyone around me said Aramean. And my parents didn't really use the word. So it was just Ahna Sirioe now. And the churches, I um, there was just one Syriac Orthodox church in uh, Paderborn. And they, they separated each other after internal conflict of the within the community, the church community. And then we had three churches. It was really confusing uh, for me. They formed this new churches um, depending on which village you're from in Abdin. So, but and they were all Syriac Orthodox churches, but yeah, all, all from the same, uh, from different villages. Yeah, exactly. So one church, people from one uh, village, they formed a new church. They actually built it, a new church just across the street. Yeah, and the third uh, community, they prayed in a Catholic church. It was confusing in the sense that before I went with my friends to one church, And I was singing in a choir. And after that, my friends and my even some of my relatives, they all went to different churches. And I didn't go to church anymore after that separation. It wasn't like it used to be. Yeah, I can imagine that that's really devastating for a young person to, to witness something like that. And especially when it comes to, you know, church and and. Christianity and you know love your neighbor and then you just see the opposite in front of your eyes that just yeah. takes a lot uh, I think away from like it's not really authentic then what is preached right that's true uh, I felt the same and it's really sad I think a lot of uh, young Assyrians didn't go to church after that or they lost the fun of it because before we were really a church group, a youth group, and we we're doing activities together and then we were separated. Yeah. And uh, that's how was, I was actually confronted and exposed to the internal conflicts we had. I mean, there's political conflicts and the conflicts regarding the names, but also this village nationalism. <laughs> 
and uh, I think we are separated as we are and when we even separate each other due to the villages we are from I think it's insane like we are hundreds of groups and then already fractioned and separated diaspora community. You said you were you called yourself an Aramean at the beginning and your parents said we're all one people like we're all the same so I assume you were not raised with an awareness of the Assyrian identity? No, not in that sense that we're saying Assyrian. I knew uh, after, like, after I was 13, 14 years old, I knew that there were different names, but I saw them as synonyms and I still see them as synonyms and we are all one people, Surai, Suroi, however you call yourself. And that was how I was raised. I just uh, picked up the Aramean word because I think the majority in Germany says Aramean in German. About your parents, though, which village are they actually from? Um, my parents are both from Toradin, mother from uh, Zaz, the village of Zaz uh, in Tor Islo, and my father from Harpzo, that's at least the Assyrian word for it. Uh, they call it Khrabe Meshka, but it's a Kurdish word. Wow, I never heard of it, your, your dad's village. And fun fact, now you're actually back in Berlin. You, a few years yeah. ago, you moved back to Berlin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 2016, I moved back to Berlin uh, to study, do my master's here uh, in psychology. And then I also married here and stayed here. You went to university and you started psychology. What do you call your current profession and where are you actually working now? Um, I'm currently a psychotherapist in training. Uh, so I did my bachelor and master in psychology and then you need to do a special training of three and a half years in Germany in order to become a psychotherapist and to start your own practice. I'm specializing in behavior therapy and that is what I'm doing now uh, the past two years. The first year I had to work in a psychiatric hospital Then I did half a year in an uh, addiction clinic uh, for illegal addictions. This year I have an interim license to do therapy on my own, uh, but supervised. Which means that I have one hour of supervision every four hours I'm doing therapy with a client or patient. We have a walk-in clinic in our institute uh, where we can take in patients and we invoice via the health insurances of our patients. And many people confuse the professions of psychologists, psychotherapists, and psychiatrists. I don't know if you know the differentiation. No way. No way. <laughs> yeah. So when you do your bachelor and master in psychology, you're a psychologist, but you're not allowed to do therapy, uh, psychotherapy, and have an own practice. Then you do your, your psychological training or psychiatric training. Then you become a psychological psychotherapist. But if you study medicine and do that psychiatric training, then you are a psychiatrist and you can give medication to your patients, which and you don't do as a, a psychological psychotherapist. And was that always your dream? Like when you went to school, you knew you want to become this or how did that? Um, well, I wouldn't say it was always my dream. I think I was always an ambitious kid. So I always wanted 
had an aim and uh, had something to work for, but it really evolved my uh, wish or my job perspective evolved uh, during my childhood. It started with becoming a doctor, but I figured very fast that I couldn't see blood. <laughs> and then I wanted to become most uh, part of my childhood a lawyer and of my teenage time. But after an internship, I decided for myself that the law is not always just, in my opinion. And I felt like if you really want to help people, like helping others to do, help themselves is the best thing to do, or uh, at least from my perspective. And that's really what psychotherapy is about, helping people to self-reflect, to work through past grievances, past experiences, and to find a way to deal with them in the present and really stand on your own feet. From what you just told me, I can see that you had a, from a very early age on uh, a sense of justice and like what, what is right and what's good for the people. Uh, yeah, my family actually called me the family lawyer <laughs> because every time there was a fight or conflict, I, I was defending the person who I thought was treated unfairly. And I also did that at school. Uh, I was known for it. And I think that was why I developed the notion of becoming a lawyer. But um, as I said, I don't think law is always just. And you are kind of confined to the limits of law and lawmaking. And I had a problem with that. So um, uh, when I went uh, to England, uh, to London, my cousin's living there, and I spent there a couple of months and went to school there. And they had psychology as a subject. And I fell in love with psychology and the whole notion of nature and nurture and the balance between it. So how you are set with genes, like and genes have an impact on your personality development, but also your social environment and how you're raised. And that interaction uh, actually defines how you develop. You just built the bridge to my next question. And this is, has also something to do with this topic. Uh, at university, you choose a very interesting topic for your master thesis. And I'm, I'm going to read the title because it's so long. Exploring the Seifu among three generations of an Assyrian-Syriac survivor family. A family systems perspective for understanding the transgenerational transmission of emotions, values and beliefs. Whoa, mashallah. Very long. <laughs> so, That's the wrong title. Can you walk us a little bit through what inspired your thesis topic and how you went about uh, your research for it? I attended a seminar or a lecture here in Berlin before I moved to Berlin and before, um, I think, during my bachelor uh, studies. And it was a lecture from Enver Chitras. He's a, an Assyrian psychologist from Sweden. I think he's currently working in Turkey. And he is uh, specialized in the field of psychology of religion and also uh, research a lot about the transgenerational trauma and how it has effect affected subsequent uh, generations. 
and I really was fascinated by his lecture and exchanged contact information with him and stayed in contact with him. During my bachelor uh, thesis, I, um, I talked a lot with him. And then in my master's, I developed this research question and asked him to be my secondary reviser. Is, is it reviser? Auditor, I think. <laughs> yeah. And that's how it really, like, my inspiration got from there. But also because I saw that there's a scarcity in the research field regarding everything that has to do with the Assyrians and about the SAFO on an historic level, but also on a psychological level. So I thought it could, I could contribute uh, in that field. And what I did is that I had a theoretical framework, which I use as, on the one side, the theory on transmission of trauma, and on the other, Bowen's family systems theory. So it's about how the family works as a system and how changing one unit, and one unit could be a family member, can change the whole system. So there's a lot of interaction in the family system uh, through communication. And I didn't want to look at the at trauma as something pathological, so in the sense of a clinical disorder, but rather how beliefs, values, and emotions are transmitted across the generations. And that's why it's not really a clinical perspective, but rather a family system perspective. And is it is it proven, for example, I am, I would say, fourth generation. Mm. And do you really believe, or is it proven that the genocide has an effect on my genes? Um, well, I can't tell you from my research if it has an effect or impact on the genes, but I know that it has been proven in research papers that uh, trauma can have an effect on genes, which are passed along generations. But uh, from my uh, research paper, I can say that that it has an effect on your emotions, on your worldviews and your sense of identity and that there's still a presence in different fields of life or areas of life in fourth generation survivors. There's actually a part in your thesis, you know, I was going through it and it really, it really stuck with me. And I somehow can also relate to it to a certain extent, obviously not fully. It's from the interview with the third generation of Safe Survivor. And that's the person that, you know, still lived in Turadin and then now lives in Germany. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read it. It, the Seifo, has an impact every day in my job, no matter where I am. I know I'm not German. I know. Although I'm in a safe country, I'm not what I am here anyway. I always feel like I'm someone else. I catch myself thinking, this is not the life that was intended for me. I would have to breathe in that other air. You have doubts every day in what you do. This is not what I'm entitled to. So uh, I could yeah. like, there has been a lot of occasions where I think, am I really belonging here to this, you know, society, to this country, even though I, I was born here. So mm -hmm. I don't know, that really stuck with me. Can you a little bit talk more about that person that you interviewed? 
Yeah, it's a very emotional statement. And uh, maybe uh, before uh, a little bit about the setup of my uh, of my thesis, I had a case study. So I interviewed three generations of one family. And I made interviews with the second generation survivors, third and fourth. And there was uh, a quote of the interview with the third generation survivor. And yeah, she felt... She had a struggle her whole life about where she belongs to. And even though uh, she has a good job and she found somehow her place in the German society, she still had the feeling as if she didn't really belong to Germany and there, that there was this whole other life that she could have lived if it weren't for the SAFO and for for the massacres and for the migration and flight of our people to diaspora. And that bothered her. She thought a lot about it. And I think that's reflected in this quote. In your thesis, I saw a table at the end in the attachment. And uh, I can see things like themes and codes. Can you talk a little bit about what are these codes? What are these themes? And um, just how how that construct works as i said i did interviews so it was a qualitative study and i had codes that were deducted from the theoretical framework so the theories i was basing my uh, my thesis on and i had codes that i constructed inductively after doing the interviews i read through them and when i saw parallels and uh, overlapping topics then I construed codes out of that. So every theme has a set of codes. So for example, there was the theme cultural trauma, and then there were the three codes, cultural genocide, religious differentiation, and experience of loss. And some of those codes are from my theoretical framework on some of them um, because of the, the results or the, um, yeah, the results I had during that interview. For example, for the theme Reconstructing the Lives, you had as a result code number one, Seeking a Better Future, which is Rebuilding the Homeland and Unity within the Assyrian and Syriacs. It's really interesting. When I read Reconstructing the Lives, I feel like you're going to reconstruct it in Germany, like this is new, your new life, but somehow the survivors are still not, you know, past their uh, experience and their home and they didn't give it up. Yeah, that's true. So all generations showed that they were seeking for a better future. The, the second generation rather uh, was about a better future in the homeland. So they were still connected very uh, strongly to that we have to uh, rebuild the homeland. And uh, across the generations, It became more about seeking for a better future than our parents or grandparents had. So they had this duty to build a better future for their children that they can live freely and that they and for our people in diaspora also, it was about unity within our community and taking the opportunities we have here not for granted. Are there any codes? where you would say, 
you were surprised to find them because obviously there are like codes like uh, themes like anxiety traumatic grief like mm. uh, you can already guess that's gonna you know be uh mentioned in the interviews but are there some some of them where you would say you were surprised to hear that i think what's I find surprising or rather positive, and I think we do not stress it enough, is the growth we experienced after that trauma or traumatic chapter in our past. And when I talk about uh, growth, it's growth in the sense of resilience that we have as a people. I mean, we are a minority which is oppressed and suppressed for centuries now. And we still strive for a better future. We are still, there's still pride in who we are. So they couldn't break that. It wasn't broken in the past. And there's a gratitude uh, towards our ancestors for surviving and for offering us the chance to have a future at all. And I think what we should really focus on is are those proactive attitudes. In research, we should focus more about it, not only the victimhood of our people, and also as a community. And I think that's something also beautiful. Even it's difficult to say in that tragic topic, it's a strength we have as Assyrians. I'm wondering if you want to expand this research in the future other people you know groups that are working around these topics of mental health psychology within the assyrian nation um, because really i see a lack of it and i see not enough therapists also as assyrians i know a lot of people that were seeking for help but they always have this problem that the therapist is German or, you know, American, and um, maybe they don't really understand the cultural, you know, perspectives. So what I'm wishing for the future is that we would have a place to go where we can talk with people from our own nation and seek help. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And well, I know there uh, are a lot of people working in that field. Besides Enver, who I've already mentioned, there are other Assyrians also and Assyrian psychologists. But um, there hasn't been an organized initiative yet that offers or that creates a network of psychologists and psychotherapists, which I also think is a beautiful notion and a good, like an important plan as well on the research level, but also in the field of mental health and actually therapy. Well, I, I would be up to it. <laughs> and I think sometimes it's just the motor which is, which is missing, like first uh, inspiration or the, when the stone gets rolling, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And uh, I think sometimes we are so, uh, so focused on our everyday lives that projects like this get into the background. But I hope that there, in future, there will be something like that. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit more about your involvement in the Assyrian community, because from what I know, you didn't have one direction from the very beginning. Your journey included different cultural and political streams of our nation. And as I said, I can really relate to that. 
Can you please tell us a little bit about your experiences in those movements? I think it started when I was 13 years old um, with my first visit in the homeland. So I wasn't active uh, back then and uh, we visited for the first time the villages uh, in southeast Turkey, today's southeast Turkey, so Toragdin, where my parents were born and raised. And I don't really think that I understood the importance of this trip uh, to my parents and even for me at that age. Um, I just remember very vividly how we drove as a family to the villages my parents are from. I remember how me and my siblings got out of the car and I had a thorough look at the surroundings. It was a lonely sight, um, abandoned houses, uh, rather ruins, since only the fundaments of most of them were left. And um, my parents showed us around in each of the villages and told us which one of the houses was theirs, where they slept, ate, played with each other from which fountain they drew their water, on which fields my grandparents worked, and so on. And what I saw was no infrastructure, no running water, no electricity, no streets, no people at all. I know it sounds harsh, but... And I knew my parents saw something I couldn't see, and that these villages were much more to them and looked differently in their eyes than in mine. And that really stuck with me. It didn't let me go. Uh, and even when we were back in Germany, I now saw the privileges we had, knew my parents did not have, and I wanted to know why. And I think around 13 is the, the age where many teenagers search for their identity and orientation. And I guess that was also the time my search started. And it really started uh, because a friend of ours who was active within the Dardanoi movement, and my parents have been already active in that time, uh, in Soroy TV. Can you say the name again? Uh, Dardanoi movement. Um, oh, okay. What, what does that mean for the people that don't know? Um, Dauro is called something like New Era, uh, New Time. So Dardanoi are revolutionaries. Okay. I think that's a word you can use as translation. And it's a political movement, I'd say. It's not a new term uh, as in an ethnic term, as a Syrian Aramean, but rather a name for a movement. Okay, got it. Yeah, and uh, so my parents were already active there uh, and with the TV station Suroi TV, uh, which is based in Sweden. And we had a friend visiting. Um, it was soon after our trip. And I told him about my experiences and... Everything I told you just right now. And he said, wow, uh, write an article about it. And I was surprised about the idea, but he was the editor of this paper, Renishrin, which is also part of, of Soroy TV, or the, it's based there in the Soroy TV station. That's what I did after he suggested it. I went into my room, I took a piece of paper and a pen, and I wrote everything down that came into my mind. It was, I think, six or seven uh, written pages. And I typed them in afterwards and sent it as an article. And that was my first one, which was published in Renishrin. Uh, I know a few years ago, uh, I went into my uncle's basement and I saw some magazines from Renishrin. And I saw your picture and I was like, hey, wait, I know her. 
just she looks like 12 years old but I, <laughs> I know that Ninora now I don't remember what you wrote about but I remember thinking my god she was so young for writing an article like that Yeah, uh, I think a lot of people wrote me emails, you know, there was always the picture and the email contact uh, underneath it uh, in the paper. And so I got a lot of emails where people were very surprised about my age. And yeah, I think I was premature in that sense. And it was all triggered by my first visit to the homeland. And I think I was generally thinking about about stuff other uh, other kids of my age wasn't weren't thinking about. And it has a lot to do with living between two cultures that you are confronted very early on in your life with, with topics other children or German children do not have to think about because yeah. it's, everything is given. They live in Germany. There's this German system. They are not afraid of losing their identity or the language. And uh, we as a bicultural young Assyrians. I mean, we only have one culture, but it get mixed up with the host, yeah. with the culture of the host country we're living in. So there we are German Assyrians and then there are American Assyrians or uh, Turkish Assyrians. And all of them have the same struggle because they are trying to live between these two cultures or reinvent themselves with two cultures. I think that's what, what led me mature earlier on. So that was the first thing I did, uh, writing every month an article for Nishrin. And then with 15 years old, I started attending the youth camps of ESU, the European Zurich Union, which is a political party within the Dornoy movement. And we formed a youth committee, uh, so ESU Youth. Uh, it was formed uh, in Brussels. So my father drove me to Brussels to that meeting where we founded ESO Youth. And I became with 15 the president of the ESO Youth chapter in Germany. And we were all wow. very young. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. 15 is not the age where you think you're leading a political party at, or a chapter of it. Um, but uh, we had young Assyrians from all ages uh, being active there. And yeah, so what we did were uh, memorials uh, for the matches uh, which were formed during the SAFO. We did culture events, we did youth camps. So I was traveling a lot across Switzerland, Netherlands, uh, Brussels, so Belgium and Sweden. And yeah, I did that until I was, I think, 18 years old. My parents left the Daudonoi movement when I was around 17 years old. They had this whole initiative from members who were discontent um, with uh, certain topics within the movement. I can't really remember what was written in the letter, but it was basically about them feeling like they weren't heard as members, as normal members. I don't know if you heard about it, but within the Dardanui movement, they're um, like normal members and Kadrouye, which are people who commit their lives to the cause. So every financial, everything, they commit their whole time to the movement. I and didn't, I, I never heard of that. I only know about, you know, the common like members and then the people that fight in the mountains in the homeland along with like Kurds and other tribes. Yeah, the guerrilla fighters, yeah. The, the yeah, the, most of them are also Qadruye because they they spend like really their life to the cause. 
or committed to the cause. But there are also within uh, Europe, there are caters or cater members who during a full-time job, I think their expenses are paid, but they don't get a salary, a normal salary. So what they felt was that that a lot of members are not heard within the movement or that there's a two-class member system. And they wanted that critical topics are discussed openly. And after writing that letter and signing them, um, I was confronted by a lot of my friends within the movement, why my parents signed it and if I agree with it. And I tried to distance myself in the beginning, not in a sense from my parents, but rather from the topic and said, well, my parents have their opinion, but I'm still active. And after one year, um, I think that year I started to really be more critical and to pay more attention to controversial uh, topics within the movement. And what I saw a lot was that people who left the movement or started to question things within the movement were being ostracized. And I really had a moral conflict with that when, especially when it were people that I that I appreciated and, and with, whose work I appreciated. And then they started to talk badly about them and there were never really satisfying explanations why those that person was treated like that or why they left. And that was for me also triggering the need of distancing myself from the movement. And that I did when I was 18 years old. And it started with me really being more critical. And I think it was important for me for my free development as a person. What are your most joyful memories with the Dauronoi? Any positive things that you want to, want to point out? Um, yes, definitely. Uh, even though me leaving the movement wasn't, wasn't a positive experience, because I also lost a lot of friends with that, it was still a very important time in my life. Being active within the Dauronoi movement was what triggered my love for the nation and my search for identity. It started all with the Dauronoi movement. And I think uh, the desire to be active and the need or the responsibility for upholding my uh, cultural heritage all were triggered by the Dauronoi movement or by my time within the Dauronoi movement. And I still appreciate that and I still and fond of the notion uh, that is behind it, that we are all one people, uh, no matter which uh, name you are using. And I think that's something that still stuck with me and that I still believe in, even if I don't agree uh, with everything within the movement or the political views. Yeah, that's actually something that I also first experienced with the Dauronoi, that we are one people, that we don't, we don't differentiate between the names. So... What else? What else did you do? I think with 16, I became a member of Kano Suryoyo. It's educational organization or an organization that is committed to fostering education within our community in Germany. And I started within the high school committee of Kano Suryoyo in Paderborn and was there on the board and until I started studying. And then I was also, I stayed within the board of Kanosurio in the field of uh, marketing and I did the Kanosurio newspaper. 
And I did that until I was 24 years old. And I noticed that you also have to make some sacrifices in order to still have some free time. Um, I was active in many, as I was active in within the Darnoy movement and Khan Suryoyo and later on with AJM as well. And it was all too much together. Oh. Um, yeah. So... I'm still a member of Kansler, but I chose to give up my office within the board. And I think that's actually very, very common. The active people that we have in our nation, they do so much at the same time and then they burn out very early. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, I'm a victim too of this, so <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. Uh, you just mentioned AJM, which we were talking about that in the beginning. It's the Assyrian Youth Federation of Central Europe. So AGM is a non-profit and democratic children's and youth organization which is active in Central Europe. And it is non-partisan and non-denominational. That means that we are neither connected to a specific church or confession, nor to a political party or ideology. And I think that was important for me. Um, so different Assyrian youth groups and associations from Germany, Austria and Switzerland have joined together to form AJM as an umbrella organization. And the main purpose was to connect Assyrian youth in Central Europe across borders, but also internationally um, in order to preserve our cultural heritage and everything that is connected to that as the history, language, folklore dances and so on. So it's about giving the Syrian youth in Central Europe a voice and uh, representing their interest and also to professionalize the youth work, uh, the Syrian youth work and uh, of course to promote integration also into, into the existing structures in the respective countries. And for me, one of the most important goals is to support young Assyrians in the development of their personality and identity, to give them orientation uh, in that uh, sensitive phase and to encourage them to uh, form or to develop a social democratic behavior, to receive political education and uh, to, to create or to develop also cultural interest. I think it's not something that we should take for granted that every Assyrian, young Assyrian is interested actually into their culture. So we try to spark the passion for being Assyrian and the love for their culture background. You mentioned something really important in that early age, you're already starting to build a foundation. Because as I heard, like, I think you and me, we, we became active around like 15 years old. Mm -hmm. I never had that. I never had an orientation. And I think that's just so important for, for everyone to, to have that opportunity. So as a youth federation, are you or is AJM the, the youth section of an elderly federation? Um, yeah, the beginnings of AJM are rooted in the Assyrian culture work in Germany and connected to the Central Association of Assyrian Organizations in Germany and European Sections. It's a long name. Uh, short, we call it SAVD, Z-A-V-D. And that's our, let's call it, adult uh, association. But we uh, emancipated from the organization in the sense that we are an independent youth association. 
and the beginnings, or I think the end of the 80s, uh, it was about around 87, uh, they formed an Assyrian Youth Committee, which uh, was then, or which emancipated itself in 2002, when AJM was founded by the youth groups connected to the member organizations of Zaft from Germany, Austria and Switzerland, as well as from individual activists. So before AJM was structurally connected to the adult organization and after that we formed an own federation with own structures and I think that's very important because it enabled the Assyrian youth to freely develop their own opinion, which is from my point of view something absolutely essential and necessary for the youth to strive. Yeah, so in the meantime, a large number of independent groups have joined AJM, so not only uh, groups which are connected to the Assyrian movement. And our youth groups can use different names as well, as long as they are in line with our constitution. Um, so we have a lot of members now that don't, or who initially didn't call themselves Assyrian or still don't call themselves Assyrian, and that is okay, as long as they understand that all the names are a part of our cultural heritage. And I think that broadened our worldview and the spectrum of our youth work. It increased diversity within AJM. So I call it an intra-cultural opening because we opened the borders within our community. Do you think this intraculturalness like should be adopted by by other Assyrian youth federations as well? Do I you think... only see benefits in that? Because I can imagine somebody saying, "Oh, if you accept all the names, then you also you're not pushing enough the Assyrian name and you support separatism, etc., etc." Mm. Um, yeah, I see where you're coming from. And I think also within AJM, there was, when I joined AJM, they weren't that open to the different names than we are as an association now. So it was a development. And a lot of them or a lot of Assyrians in general are threatened or feel threatened when the names get mixed or they think you have to pursue it now the other side that your side is the right side but i think when you leave that at the side that you when you say our agenda is not to promote a name but to promote a culture then it's only an opportunity because you see no matter how we call ourselves, Assyrian, Chaldean or Aramean or whatever, we agree all that we, well, that we speak the same language, that we have the same dances, that we eat the same food. That's seldomly it's that that we are, that we are arguing about. It's only the name. So when you stop seeing the name as borders or as artificial borders and start seeing them as, as enrichment, as part of your cultural history, as the Assyrian Empire entailed a lot of different ethnic groups who got mixed up and formed now Assyrians as we know them today. You can see it as, as I said, as an enrichment of your culture and not as a threat. And that's what I believe in. And I think what AJM believes in and a lot of our partners, international partners also believe in. I can see some similarities from your other engagement that you had you know with other groups and movements it somehow comes down to we are all one that's like very important to you and that 
that is something that doesn't change within the groups and movements that you're, you know, like when you're going from one group to another group. Yeah, that's true. And the only thing that changed is that uh, my openness to diverse opinions, and I don't see that as, an, as something bad, but as a chance. I mean, you don't see Germans all agreeing <laughs> about everything. You have a lot of different uh, political parties, but they all try to work for the benefit of their country. And that's similar how I see it. Okay, we don't have a country in that sense uh, that uh, uh, officially belongs to us, but we s should still embrace diverse opinions because through that controversy, we can develop or we can learn from each other. And I think that's very important. And this intraculturalness, I don't know, I don't even know if that's a word, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. We're German. <laughs> um, how does it look like Britain in, in the constitution of the organization? Because it's still the Assyrian New Federation of Central Europe, right? It's not the Assyrian, Syriac, Chaldean, Aramean New Federation. Yeah, that's true. And we write, and I, I don't have it literally in my mind, but we have a preamble, so pre-word in our constitution, where we have a self-reflection as AJM. We don't see it as self-reflection for all people, like for, for all Assyrians, but rather as an association or federation that we, or that we accept all the, the different um, uh, influences we have and all the ethnicities that are part of our history. So Arameans, Chaldeans, Assyrians, Babylonians, so on. Um, and that we see the word Assyrian as inclusive, including all of them. But that doesn't mean that you have to use it, but rather that when we say Assyrian, we include all of the names that are represented within our community. And when you say, for example, I'm a Chaldean, but I agree that Assyrians are also part of my nation or of my ethnicity, then it's fine, then we agree. And I think that's, in short, uh, how we deal with the controversy of the names. And we, are, of course, have a whole page about it. You can read it in our constitution. And I think it opens the borders. I'm actually really loving that um, yeah, because I can really relate to that. That, that just speaks for my values and morals and... That's also something, a potential that I saw in AJM. Um, I came in touch with AJM when I was 19 years. Um, I think my cousin was friends with Sanharib Zimzek, uh, you know him. <laughs> um, he's also very active in AJM and has been in the past and the present. They were in that time advertising the first Australian International Youth Exchange in the States in Chicago. And me and my cousin applied to that trip and got accepted. And that's, that was the first activity I did with AJM and really got stuck with me. And uh, I fell in love with the work since I really saw that, you, that AJM brings our people closer together, that forms international networks. And that way AJM has a major impact in me. And then I remember one year later, somehow convincing me to attend a general uh, body meeting of AJM. And I didn't really intend to, to run for, for office or uh, to become member of the board. But I, someone uh, suggested me. 
And I, I thought, okay, why not? I get to know, I have one year, a trial year, and then I can reevaluate if I want to stay on the board. And well, I did stay for nine years. Yeah, you were stuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back to the young people, what are the age range within AJM? Our activities start for children of the age of six years with our Camp Nabu, where we have a weekend uh, with activities for them and to learn in a playful way about our culture and language. And then after Camp Nabu, there's Camp Ashur. It's from 12 to 17 years, where we have a week with seminars and workshops and they learn dancing. They, we have language courses and it's, it's a really fun program, but very educational as well. And after that, we have the Camp Dolabani. It's from 18 years plus. There we have also a week, but we differ sometimes with the time. Sometimes it's five days, sometimes it's eight days. Yeah, and after, uh, besides of that, we have our culture event every year. We have a lot of seminars about different topics, political topics, societal topics, uh, we ha where we have a um, project at the moment, for example, the Speak Up project. It's the, the Syrian Forum for Gender Justice, where we talk about the structure within our community, words and norms. Do we agree with them? What Do we have a patriarchal system? And what double standards maybe do we have in our community? And we really try to break taboos within the, that project or start to question structures within our community. So it's not just like a woman project. It's actually for all the all genders. Yeah, I really like to stress that. It's not a project from women to women. It's really an inclusive project where men and women or young Syrians from all genders come together and yeah self-reflect really like on an individual level but also on an on a collective level as a community normally when it's not the corona pandemic we have international youth exchanges i think the first exchange was to Dardine, to the homeland and, and after that uh, came the chicago exchange where i was a part in and after that we had i think countless of exchanges within Europe, but also in Iraq, in Armenia, in Russia, in Canada, different states within the USA as Arizona, Arizona, California, and Detroit, Michigan. So we did a lot of exchanges, uh, which also resulted uh, 2017 into the foundation of the World Assembly of Assyrian Youth, WAY which was during a youth exchange in Canada on an international youth summit where a lot of different partner organizations attended and formed way. So I think that's the beautiful thing in our work. You see it evolving. You see a fundament and on that we built something on top of it. Uh, and I think it's something beautiful. Speaking about the USA exchanges, They are very, very special to AGM people. That's what I always hear about. Why do you think is that? I would say, of course, at first it's very exciting. Uh, a lot of uh, young German students haven't visited the States yet. And I wouldn't uh, only say the exchange with USA, but also with Canada and with the homeland or within Europe, they all have something very defining. They, they really enrich every participant. I know 
I know every every person who attended an international youth exchange was flashed, was was so impressed by it because they learned something new about themselves, but also about their people. And they build lifelong friendships. We professionalize uh, a lot by doing that ex those exchanges because we exchange know-how about youth work. And it inspires a lot of people. So I know places where there has been a loose group where we did an exchange, they formed a, a real association after that. Can you make an example? Um, I think, for instance, when we went to Toronto, Canada, I know there was already the EXU uh, was in the beginnings of their work. And I think a lot of the participants were very inspired by the exchange and got a lot of motivation and fuel for their work. And also in Modesto, when we went to Cassia, um, it was the beginning of the group. I wouldn't say that because of the International Youth Exchange, they, they formed a group, but rather that the exchange uh, had a positive impact on it and, and motivated a lot of young Assyrians to become active on both sides. So it's also on our side, there are a lot of young Assyrians who came for the first time on an AGM activity and, and inspires them to become active in Germany or in Austria, Switzerland. I know that AJM Bavaria, since you're also present in, in different uh, German states, they're very proud of the Buduke. Can you explain to the people uh, what Buduke is if they're not familiar with this, yeah, like activity? So I think after the ISIS invasion in 2014 and the mass migration and flight after that of our people again, a lot of uh, Assyrians from Iraq and Syria came to, to Germany, especially. Um, I can only talk from the German perspective here. And with that, there came also the cultural practice within our community of scoutism. I didn't know that we had scouts, Assyrian scouts uh, in the homeland. And I think a lot of Assyrians and the diaspora didn't know that as well. So with the refugees, there came again new practices from the homeland as the Buduke. A lot of new members or people who came members in AJM told us about it. They said we were active as scouts in, let's say, Kamishli, and they were back then active as scouts within the church. But our churches in Germany, they don't know it. They don't know this practice. So we tried as AJM to help them rebuild those groups or build new groups in diaspora. So that's what we did. And one of the first groups, I think, was uh, who became member was the uh, Buduke Dolabani, which is the group in AGM Bavaria. And after that, we I think we have around eight or nine Buduke groups, uh, scout groups, and we formed a scout committee within AGM with an own board, so to help them also to professionalize themselves and to integrate themselves into the structures here of the host countries and to learn how it actually works. And since then, um, scoutism is a big part of our work. Hearing about all the work from AGM and the activities, I really have to ask you guys, how can you afford this financially? Because I know a lot of organizations struggle in Germany and they depend on donations from Assyrians. So what are your resources? So we never really funded ourselves by membership fees or donations up until now. 
I know in the beginnings, a lot of the young activists paid out of, of the, the expenses out of their own pockets. And so what was important for us, and I think our predecessors uh, fostered very beautifully, was the connection to the German structures. So the state structures we have. In 2006, AJM became a member of the German Youth in Europe, short uh, DJO. And the German Youth in Europe is itself a member of the German Federal Youth Association that directly receives funding by the German federal ministries. And I think we fastly learned that it's important to network, not only within our community, but also outside the community and use the opportunities that are entailed by that. So we started with projects in Gütersloh, Germany, where we could employ the first person uh, to actually work in the project uh, and get a salary, which was funded by state funding. And after that, we came into a bigger project that ensured structural funding, so an annual funding that we get. And we still have to work with it. So I think in 2000, don't let me lie, 2014, we get uh, received uh, annual fundings. And we're one of the first youth organizations with migrational background to receive a fixed annual funding. And we worked for that very hard. And we still work for that. And I think that's something, of course, not everyone has the same possibilities in each country, but a lot of countries offer funding for nonprofit organizations. And I can just suggest and advise everyone to study how your state is working and how the funding process is, if there are initiatives or institutes who do funding, because um, it ensures the long-term success of your work. You have more than 10 years of experience in youth work. And two weeks ago, actually your last year as the president of AGM officially ended, you're making room for the next generation. Generally speaking, I think there's so much we can learn from you. And I want to know what were the biggest lessons you learned? That's a big question. <laughs> um... I think I've learned that it is important to talk with each other, not about each other. I've seen a lot of prejudice within our community and that a lot of issues arise due to miscommunication or the lack of empathy. And instead of forcing our opinions and views on each other, I think it is crucial, so very crucial to listen to each other and try to understand how and why the person of me thinks that way. And I also learned that it's especially important to me that it's not natural and good to all have one shared opinion. I think we misconstrue the, the picture of unity. Unity within our nation doesn't mean that there can't be different opinions. I think it's rather worrying to join an association where free and diverse way of thinking is not welcomed. For example, why should it be a problem that the members can have different political opinions or beliefs? I mean, all the countries we lived in, I already said, that have different political uh, influences. And we can have discussions and arguments, but in the end have one common goal in the, within our youth association. And I think that should be in the foreground not uh, individual or political interests. I always said, um, I don't want to be 
So I don't want to be like... What is Gabo? Gabo is a political party. So I, I don't want to... Be a to, politician? Yeah, politician in the sense that I work in order to foster an ideology. But I want to work to foster our people or our community and to develop it. Does Who said sense? that? Yeah, totally. I said that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's so we nice, yeah. nice, really nice. Yeah. So we really should learn to put that aside and to to focus on the things we have in common and to learn to live with the things we don't have in common because that's just something natural. I just want to also like know some highlights of your very positive experiences and the negative. I think the negative have a lot, have a lot to do with the things that I just mentioned, uh, like the misuse of the different names. Um, I say, I'm, I'm calling it misuse because I think we do actively misuse the names for a purpose they are not intended to. And also with the different churches. Um, that's something I felt very strongly negative about and that I'm confronted with, I think, in the present less, but in the, in the past I've, I've been confronted with it a lot. And I think uh, we can be proud of everything in our past and what we are not proud of, we can change. We can learn from our past mistakes. The positive for me is the potential that I saw over the years and I still see within our youth. I'm convinced that we haven't achieved even half of what we are capable of. I'm happy to see that there has been improvement and development. I think Way, the World Assembly of Assyrian Youth, is, is a sign of it and a product of what we've achieved. And I think it's still in the, in the first steps, in the baby steps uh, way, and it still can prosper a lot. So I have a lot of hope for what we can achieve with that international platform. You know, at the end of every interview, we ask our guest to say something to our listeners that, you know, listen from all around the world. But somehow I think like everything that you said was already directed to them. Or would yeah. you like to add something? <laughs> well, maybe I can just summarize it, but I really think I already said it. Um, we should learn from our history past mistakes, but focus on work for our present and future. It does not help us to live in the past and to spend our time with old quarrels. Be free to develop your own opinions and your own path. So please ask questions, exercise criticism in a constructive way, but also appreciate the work that has been done. Don't let others tell you what is right or wrong. So only you can say what it means for you to be a Syrian and how you want to contribute to the cause. 